open up your Bible back to John chapter 3. And once more we've been studying John 3.16. So I'm going to read that to you this morning. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Once more, we're remembering this context of God's love, of who God is, within the framework of salvation. God loved the world. He gave. All those who believe would then not die eternally, but live eternally with God. So I'm glad that you're here this morning. I'm glad that you're ready to worship, and now you're ready to look at Scripture and see what Scripture has to offer us and and, and see what God's Word says to us through this wonderful act of love. As we've seen God's plan develop through the biblical narrative, we've come to the intersection in this verse, John 3.16, and the cross. As the verse starts, we are reminded of how God saves and, once again, how he loves in this way. The verse teaches us God's important work of salvation. And the verse is found within the context of salvation. How does God save and why he saves are answered through the understanding of this divine plan of salvation. This was always set forth. This was... God's ordained decree to plan salvation in this way. His son takes on the sin of humanity and therefore diverts the wrath of God from us back to him. This was God's plan all along, to save sinners through a glorious exchange. The son of man does not come to be served, but to serve And give his life as a ransom for many. That's what we read in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. Christ serves us because God loves us. And because God loves us, he gives us that suffering servant that gives his life for the ransom of many. We've been ransomed, my friends, by Christ. What John 3.16 teaches us is this, salvation starts with God, and who God is, is defined in part by his actions here in salvation. He is love, and that's why we read, he loved. God loves because God is love. In a basic sense, he reveals his heart to us by his love for sinners, those who were at enmity with him, those whom hated God. He didn't just say, I love you. He showed us his love through Christ. Once again, Paul establishes with this with such profound words. God proves his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I want you to remember that verse in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. The focus here does not lie within the fact that we are sinners, but in Christ. The perfect, spotless, sinless Jesus, his love in action. God loves and gives his love to us. 
What God gives is his perfect son. These attributes or qualities of God then are also understood through what scripture teaches us. Who God is has been revealed to us through his word, Jesus Christ. We must not forget the words of the author of Hebrews when he, when he says, In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. He is the radiance of the glory of God, an exact imprint of his nature. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That was Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Therefore, the source of God's decrees or plans are found within his nature, who he is. We call this God's attributes. These are qualities found in God. What we mean by attributes, I'll use Robert Leatham's definition, what he says, and I quote, the attributes of God are particular aspects of what he is like. They describe his character as he has revealed it. His attributes are coextensive with who he is. They are not abstract qualities existing in their own right and somehow independent of God. Rather, God himself defines these qualities. End quote. Simply put, Love, as God's attribute, is not some Cupid-like figure flying around the atmosphere and, and, and we then compare God to that love and say God is love because he looks similar to. That is not the case. Rather, God is love and he defines it for us. It's not separate from him. It's not a separate entity. It is the very nature and the very essence of who God is. So as we follow through this verse, and, and we've stopped at several important points here. In, in the first two lessons, we've been, we've been focusing on God's decrees and God's plan as far as God being the initiator. That's why the verse starts off the way it starts. For God. God loved. And so now we're, we're, we're focusing now on this verbal aspect of God in his actions. God loves and gives. And so we're focusing on that one word, love. On, on, on how God expresses his nature to us through love. As one of his major qualities. And so to understand this, we'll, we'll break this up in, in four areas. Four distinct areas that we'll, that we'll gather our thoughts around God's love. The first area we'll talk about today would be, will be the revelations of God's attributes. How he reveals himself. The second will be on how God loves or how God loved the world. The third will be the juxtaposition of his love with holiness. We've got to remember these two are placed together. And number four, we'll talk about the results of this love. How God loves gives a result. There is a resolution to the way God loves. So to get right into it, let's start off with our first point here. The revelation of God's attributes. How does God reveal himself to us? We know God's plans or decrees are good and perfect because Scripture has taught us. 
His ways are far superior to our ways. So the, the way we've understood the plans and decrees of God have come to us by way of Scripture. For instance, God says through Isaiah, My ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. In Isaiah 55 verse 9. Paul then references Isaiah when he says, As it is written, What no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. So therefore, his attributes have been defined for us through Scripture. The way we know God's plans are defined to us by way of Scripture. The way we know who God is is defined to us by Scripture. So again, it, it isn't, God doesn't leave us this homework assignment to figure out how he is or who he is. It's not up to our imagination to develop who Christ is or make our own version of God. It is clearly depicted throughout all of Scripture. We know what love means not because the Bible only says he is love, but because he demonstrates his love. We, we have understood what mercy, grace, love, forgiveness, wrath, just, justice, holiness, and so on because of how God acts. How else would we know what forgiveness is if we don't know what sin is? So that's the important factor here through Scripture. We know these attributes of God. We understand God's qualities and characteristics because he shows us what they mean they're not abstract qualities that we have to figure out on ourselves or we haven't developed these categories like love or 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 justice or faithfulness and then attribute them to God that's not how it works God shows us how he is he tells us how he is and then he demonstrates it and one of the biggest demonstrations of God's love is found within the context of John 3 16 he loved the world in this way and therefore Christ hangs on a cross for who for sinners so that becomes very important that that's the way God demonstrates and shows his attributes most clearly within the context of Scripture. The second part I want to speak on is God's love, how he loved the world and how he actually demonstrates his love. This is number two. In the Old Testament, Israel was led by a God who revealed himself to his people through his attributes. We see this clearly in the story of Moses after the people sinned greatly against God by building for themselves a golden calf, an idol, upon Moses' delay from the mountain. That's, we read that in Exodus chapter 32. As a consequence for this sin, they not only paid with 3,000 of their lives, God takes from them by the Levites, but... God tells Moses he will not enter the land of milk and honey with them. His presence will not be with them. That, that's very important. The promise of God to the people of Israel was always the land. And God was always with them 
after Egypt. And now, because they've sinned greatly and because they've built for themselves an idol according to their, their imagination, the figment of what they wanted to develop and what they wanted to worship, God says, I will not go with you. My presence will not be with you. Moses then intercedes on behalf of his people and by so doing, God responds by saying, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. We have this intercessory prayer of Moses, the mediator between God and humanity. And so he intercedes and upon interceding, God says, I will, I will go with you and I will give you rest. Upon this favorable response from God, Moses then makes a bold claim. And Moses says in verse 18 of chapter 33, Please show me your glory. That's a bold claim. And in the way God responds is, I will make my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. In the next chapter, 34, Moses is found on top of the mountain, Mount Sinai, with the Lord, and here he shows Moses who he is. If you open your Bible quickly to Exodus, you'll see this clearly. Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What we see here. In, in, in chapter 33 and in chapter 34 is God's revelation of himself to his people. And he clearly states what it is that he is. And throughout all of Israel's history, these words will come to mind time and time again by way of the prophets. So God has already demonstrated his faithfulness. God has already demonstrated his mercy. God has already demonstrated his love in choosing a people that were insignificant. And God has redeemed them and saved them from slavery. All of this was said and all of this was done by God. And God's people experienced it and saw it. It was not just spoken to them. It was not just told to them that he was faithful. He showed them what faithfulness was like. What we see here first in chapters 33 and 34 is that his name is repeated time and time again. 
In, verse 30, in chapter 33 and in chapter 30, 34, especially verse 6, he repeats it twice. The Lord, the Lord, back to back, the Lord, Yahweh, the, the Lordship and the sovereign rule of God is placed first. That's why in John 3.16, if we were to understand salvation apart from beginning with God, we will have a corrupted view on what salvation is. And so here, the salvation of Israel, the freedom of Israel depends or is seen in the light of the Lord, Yahweh. That's why his name is so important. And that's why he shows who he is. I am who I am. This is my name. I govern, I lead, and I am sovereign over you. In second place, his actions are demonstrated and are told steadfast love and forgiveness, merciful and gracious. First of all, he was merciful to Moses by not showing his face. How was that merciful? Well, the glory and the holiness of God, God says himself, no man can support. So if God were to concede to Moses' petition, Moses would have been dead. In that action, God shows us what mercy is by not showing his glory. But he also shows his glory and, and, and his love and his steadfast, uh, immovable, merciful, and graciousness by demonstrating the forgiveness of sins. Up until this point, there has been a brutal separation from God's people and God. And that brutality and that, 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 that chasm that split God and people apart was this horrific scene of people bowing down to a golden calf. We read that, or we, we, we alluded to that in chapter 33. This was not supposed to be God's people. As a matter of fact, a couple chapters before, the Ten Commandments are given, and they are explicit in saying, do not make for yourself an idol. God abhorred idol worship because it deterred the influence and deterred the people's mindset and eyes upon an idol made with hands that could do nothing for them. And in so, what God says, God has done. Though he did punish Israel, he forgave them. And he did so by saying, I will go with you. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. So the severity of God is seen in chapter 33 by the killing of 3,000 men. But his faithfulness and forgiveness is seen in chapter 34 because people are still living and moving forward. And his presence will now be with them wherever they are. But God is very clear. His justice will be uh, put together side by side with his compassionate love. I will not leave the guilty unpunished. That's what he says in verses 7. He says, I will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So we can't separate this. 
We can't teeter-tot God and say he is more love, he is more justice, he is more wrathful, he is more holy. This is not what it means. It's, it's a combination and a coexistence of his attributes. This is part of who God is, and it's demonstrated to us early on in the Old Testament. We don't separate God's love from his lordship because it is how he governs. P.T. Forsyth says this, God is a God of holy love whose love we do not only enjoy but worship. And so when he governs and how he governs deserves our attention and our worship. God's holiness is his majestic purity that cannot tolerate moral evil. God's love is his outgoing, tender-hearted embrace of the sinner. God's holiness is his separateness from what is unclean and profane. God's love is his willingness to identify with those who are unclean in order to help them. God's holiness transcends the passing world of decay and death. God's love incarnates itself in the world of corrupt, that has been corrupted by sin. In the depth of God's love is revealed the beauty of his holiness, friends. We don't separate these two. In the glory of his holiness is revealed the breath of his love. Holiness, justice, righteousness, and wrath are the same part of God as his love. They are not separate or one beats one out of the other. Therefore, wrath is necessary or a necessary reaction of God's holiness towards sin. So number three, we've spoken about the way God reveals himself, what, how God loves, number two, and number three, his love and holiness. Now let's put those two together a little bit more, especially within the context of incarnation. What John 3.16 has taught us is that a God-man, Jesus the man, a visible human being hangs on the cross for sinners. This is Jesus. It's not a phantom. It's not a, an invisible spirit. It is the God-man who hangs on the cross. And therefore, the God of the Old Testament is incarnate in this God-man, has become man to show us not only that God is love and says he is love, but God demonstrates it by his sacrifice. God is love and so loves this world, loves his creation. And that is why he will once again redeem his creation. We, we, we live in this corrupted world not because God formed it in this corrupt nature. The world has been tainted with evil and sin and can only be redeemed or remediated by God through Jesus Christ. Pay close attention to what Romans chapter 8 says. In Romans chapter 8 verse 18, I'll read this for you. For I considered the sufferings of this present time 
are not worth comparing with the glory that has been revealed to us. Verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That's what Paul says in Romans 8, reminding us that this physical world will be redeemed by God, along with our physical bodies, from the ultimate bondage of sin, which has corrupted everything. God's love provides salvation, and he does so through Jesus Christ, the ultimate expression of God's holiness and love. So if we're going to put Christ within the context of God's love, and God is holy and he is love, then therefore the God-man must be, if he is God, both. We've often heard in post-modernity this division between the love of Jesus and the wrath of God. And as if there are two distinct beings or two separate beings. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an old heresy like Nestorianism or Eutychianism that separates the, the essences of God. And, and that's not so. And that's not what the Bible teaches us. For Jesus himself like God, because he is God on earth, is also called the Holy One of God multiple times in Scripture. Take, for instance, Luke chapter 1, verse 35. The angel replied to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. The writer of Hebrews says the same thing in chapter 7, verse 26. For this is the kind of high priest we need. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Peter then identifies the holiness of Christ when the, all the other disciples leave Jesus because of what Jesus says as far as saying, this is my body, eat of my body. And then Jesus asked him, do you want to go also? And Peter replies by saying, we have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. That's John chapter 6 verse 69. Peter reiterates and reemphasizes this in his preaching in Acts chapter 3 verse 14 when he says, you, talking to the Jewish people, denied the holy and righteous one and asked to have him murdered and let a murderer be released to you. Peter understands, yes, Jesus is love, but Jesus is holy. He is the holy one of God. There is no separation here, friends. There is no 
uh, uh, counter as God's, God's wrathfulness and Jesus' loving kindness. No, for they are the same person and they operate in the same way. To divorce his holiness from, from him is to ignore and it corrupts his very nature. Holiness ultimately means separate, separateness from those that are unclean. Holiness heightens our understanding of God's love, especially in Jesus. It is not a teeter-totter. God is more holy than he is love. Or Jesus is more loving than God is holy. In the Old Testament, God shows himself holy by his righteousness. That's what Isaiah chapter 5 verse 16 says. God's eyes are too pure. He can't even look at evil, as the prophet Habakkuk says in chapter 1, verse 13. The people of Israel will therefore live holy or be holy by observing the commandments of the Lord. In Deuteronomy chapter, 16, chapter 26, verse 16. So God is holy, and therefore Jesus, the God-man, is holy. And to understand this and, and, and get this Jesus holiness a little bit more heightened is if we take a look back at the Levitical system and, and see how this operates. In the Old Testament, the Levitical system, starting in Leviticus chapter 5, we can see is the presentation or the concept of what is clean and what is unclean. This is not a matter of hygiene, rather moral purity. If one who is clean comes in contact with anything or anyone that is unclean, that person then becomes unclean. Not by dirt, but as Leviticus chapter 5 verse 3 says, by guilt. That is how they become unclean. The only way to become clean then would be to offer up a sin offering. As chapter 5 verse 6 describes this is how Israel lived before a holy, pure God. So they developed rituals and sacrifices and heightened their level of, of cleanliness and uncleanliness. And there was animals that were more pure or, or less clean or, and, and more clean. And, and so all of this was developed in order for them to live clean. How does this heighten God's love in Jesus Christ? Think about it. Think about Jesus. The perfect holy, most clean human being in contact with unclean humanity. Jesus enters the world because ceremonies and rituals would no longer make do. Now, the perfect Jesus had to touch humanity and therefore make them clean. Prostitutes, lepers, and even some Pharisees. Jesus, in this case, successfully reverses the entire Jewish system. The Levitical system said, if you are clean and you come in contact with something that is unclean, you must offer a sin offering. Jesus now does this sin offering for us. And demonstrates to us what it means to love. Even the perfect Holy One of God shows us what love is by touching us and making us clean.
making us like him. His love made it possible for the God-man to approach sinful creation, sinful humanity, and touch them. His holiness is what made them clean. That is why the demons themselves understood Jesus as the Holy One. Mark chapter 1 verse 24 says, the demons are saying, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Even the demons knew that he was the Holy One of God. So in the demons' case, it wasn't love that drove them out. It was his name. It was his lordship. It was his holiness. That is what they attacked. They attacked Jesus' holiness. Jesus cast out that which has stained humanity. It isn't a lack of love that has stained humanity. It is sinfulness. That which corrupts humanity. So therefore, miracles in the New Testament are restorations of God's natural order. We cannot forget that sin, disease, sickness, pain, and death, even COVID-19, are not part of God's original design. They're not part of His original plan. They are a result of sin. They are a result of a corrupted world. German theologian Jürgen Moltmann says something very interesting. And I quote, When Jesus expels demons and heals the sick, he is driving out of creation the powers of destruction. And he is healing and restoring created beings who are hurt and sick. The lordship of God to which the healings witness restores creation to health. Jesus, Jesus' healings, are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are only natural thing in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. It's an interesting take on this fallen world. And so what we see here is when Jesus does these miracles of liberating man from demon, from the demons, he is attacking the kingdom of darkness. And so we do, we, he does this in two ways. By loving the world and by coming at the world with his holiness. And therefore driving out that which has stained humanity. Therefore God's love for humanity is qualified with his love for his son. Because God loved his son, now we can experience and understand it. Because now in God, we see Jesus Christ showing us and revealing to us what God is like. And next week we'll talk about this a little bit more. This inter-Trinitarian love with God with the Son and the Son with God and the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see how that all works out and how it all pans out. But it is enough to say now that we know God loves us because God loved His Son. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. That's what the Gospel of John chapter 3 verse 35 says. The one who sent to save sinners like us. The Son in return loves us because He loves the Father. 
I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. John 14, verse 31. Paul says it like this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, he says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and has given himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You see, my friends, the way Christ loves us is found in his love for God. And more so because God loved him. And by loving him, as a consequence, he loves us. And therefore, Jesus loves us and willingly goes to the cross and dies for our sin. So finally, what are the results of, these, of this love? Number four, what are the results of God's love? Well, one of the results is that we can love God. Remember, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God saved sinners. Those who were sinners, those who, who were at enmity with God, those who hated God. Well, now we can love God. In Mark chapter 12, verse 30, we read, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. These are Jesus' words to his disciples. Now we can do so because now we have God's love through Jesus Christ. John in chapter 14, verse 23 says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. We can now love God in the same love that he has given us and shown us we can reciprocate. We can give back now. Not a phony type of love. Not a counterfeit type of love. Not an idol worship type of love. You see, the biggest danger that idol worship had in Israel back in Exodus chapter 32 and 33 and 34 was that that love was phony. It was placed on an object that could do nothing. Now our object of worship, our object of love is found in the Godhead, is found in the deity, and it's more so evident in the life of Christ. We can love God purely because he has loved us purely. What else is a result of this love? Well, we can love one another. Some of the biggest verses and we'll read that in a bit, that we see about God's love for us are always within the context of, of us loving one another. For instance, in John chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And then he qualifies it. Just as I have loved you. Well, the question you can ask yourself this morning is, how do I love my neighbor? How do I love those around me? How do I love those people at church? For some of us, 
It is dreadful the fact that we can't gather together and see our faces. For others, it's like, man, this is a vacation that I don't have to see these people anymore. But is that love or is that a phony type of love? Now open your Bible to 1 John. I want to read this to you because it's one of the most important chapters and sections on love that we'll see. I know we can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, but look at what 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 and on says. Within these verses, we have the word love more than 26 times stated here. And I want you to feel the, the emphasis that John writes when he says this. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love of, that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him by this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because he is also because as he is also are we in the world there is no fear in love but perfect love casts out all fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love we love because he first loved us if anyone says I love God and hates his brother he is a liar, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must love his brother. Went out of breath there a little bit, but I wanted to make the emphasis clear. God's love in the context of Christ is always placed within the context of salvation. Did you hear that word? Propitiation? sacrifice and then what does that do it allows us to love God by him abiding in us and us abiding in him and the result of that my friends is because we can love God now because his love lives in us through the spirit we can love one another so you see when Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love God and love one another it, it cannot be done outside of God's love for us so the beauty of God's love is that he allows us to fulfill the commandments. What are the commandments? To love God and love one another. We cannot do that on our own. And so by sending Jesus, dying for our sins, taking away the corrupt nature of our lives, giving us the spirit to empower us to love, we therefore can fulfill the two greatest 
commandments. If not, you and I, that's it. We give up. There's no other way to do it. But because God is love, he has given us this opportunity. And so we can love one another. We can also love our enemy and show them what the love of God is. So if we have difficulty loving one another, can you imagine what it means to love our enemy now? The people that have hurt us, the people that have damaged us, the people who have caused us pain, the people in our, in our youth or, or even in our adult lives that, that have made our lives miserable. God says you can love them too. That's why Luke chapter 6 verse 35 says, but love your enemies and do good because we can. Again, qualified because of Jesus Christ. God is love, my friends, is not a good bumper sticker quote. It's not just a mushy phrase. God is love means it, it is a part of who God is. But not only that, it is all of God. The love of God is simply God loving. Love in itself is not God, because we don't deify love, but God is love, because that's his nature. God's love harmonizes with all his other attributes. Holiness is loving holiness. Love is a holy love. God's love is pure. Like God is light implies that there's no darkness, as John chapter 1 verse 5 says. God's love implies there's no malice or hate. God's love is of himself. It doesn't come externally. He is love. Therefore, the love of God made known in Jesus Christ cannot be reduced to God's saving work. The saving work of Christ reveals the love of God. God's love is infinite, according to Psalm chapter 36. And because God is holy and righteous, we might stand in awe and in reverence of him. God's love is a love that loves even the unlovely and unlovable. It is self-sacrificing. It is self-giving. It seeks the benefit of the recipient instead of the giver. In the wonderful words of this Puritan Thomas Watson Mercy and love sweetens all of God's attributes. God loves us and God loves you. And so therefore, friends, you can love one another and you can love God the right way. Let's pray. What can we say but to say thank you for loving us and for sending Jesus to sacrifice himself for us, that perfect sacrifice for imperfect people. Thank you for washing us. Thank you for cleaning us. Thank you for making us acceptable. And thank you, thank you for giving us the power to be able to love as you have loved us. Father, may we walk in love daily. And may this congregation, this church, be a church filled with love. Love for you and love for this community. Help this community during this time, and help the church love as you love. In Jesus' name, amen.